Um, next one is MBT forum user V Casavedo. Uh, a set of questions that relate on how we deal with our problems. Now, there's four questions here, but they're pretty short, so I'll ask them all at once, and if you want to come back, we can, I can ask them again. But the first one is, how do we proceed when we hurt someone? How do I forgive myself? Is it fair to the other person? And how can I set the intent of not hurting anyone like this anymore so that I don't come back to the same point over and over again? Okay, well, just a, we'll go back and do them one at a time, but just a general comment to that whole set of questions is that you don't jump from point A to point B. Point A being where you are now and point B where you'd like to be later. You don't do that quickly. This is a, an evolutionary process, a slow process of change, and it takes time. And like any growth process, as you said earlier, you're, you're almost not aware that you're growing while you're growing because it's a slow process. But you just keep working at it. So you keep trying to be better. And as long as you have this intent of doing better, caring more, being less self-centered, as long as that intent is just I'm kind of hanging out in you because that is the direction you want to go in. You will move in that direction and you will start to become less fearful, more caring. So just having that intent back there is, is the key and then let it evolve. Let you let it uh, express that intent slowly in a thousand different ways that your intellect isn't even aware of as you grow up. You're not intellectually aware of growing up. So that's kind of an overall view. But let's go back and hit them one at a time and see if there's something we can add to it. Okay, the first one. Sorry, Tom. The first one is how do we proceed when we hurt someone? Well, if you realize that you've hurt someone, that's the first and probably biggest step. Most people who hurt other people really don't have uh, much awareness of that or they really don't care. All right, I've hurt them. They deserve it. That's their problem, not my problem. They get hurt over that. You see, we have that kind of arrogant attitude that it's not about them. It's about us. doesn't affect us, then why should we care? And we have that attitude. So this first question kind of says, all right, I don't have that attitude. I have the attitude that I do care what I do to other people and that uh, how I affect other people is important to me. And I find out that I've, I realize that I've hurt somebody. Well, what do you do? It depends on the situation. What you do is what maximizes your ability to grow from that experience. Just being aware of the experience is a really first big step. And having the attitude that you care that you've done something that is that you shouldn't have done, that's maybe not nice. So that's the big step. Now, exactly what you do, of course, depends on the situation. Do you go make an apology? Well, maybe, maybe not. Sometimes apologies are really great when you've just hurt somebody. On the other hand, sometimes apologies just make it worse. You see, it depends on the state you're in. It just fires the other person up. So it depends on what you do. Do you uh, change the subject and, and uh, go on and pretend that it didn't happen? Well, if that eases over a socially awkward situation, maybe you do that, but you don't forget about it. You keep it in your mind. You think about it, and you ask the question, why did I do that? What led me to that statement, to that thing, to that look, to that whatever it was that was hurtful? What led me to do that? And, of course, you will find that it was ego or belief and that they come from your fear and if you work at it for a while, you'll trace that, all of that back to the fear that's at the root of it. And when you do, that's your problem. You need to work on that fear and just have that intent that you're not going to let that fear push you into that kind of reaction anymore. You're going to take charge and not do that. And probably within a day or two, you will do it again anyway. But you just keep on the, with the pressure and say, I don't want to be like that. And when that comes up next time, I'm going to stop it before it erupts. And it comes the next time, and it comes up, and it erupts, and you don't stop it. And then you, oh, 
I just don't seem to be able to get this. And you just keep working on it until it does start to work for you. Now you'll think of, oh, you know, every time just before I erupt with something that I'm sorry for, I've got this certain kind of feeling about back off, you know, don't say anything, but I'm boiling up with it. So I say it anyway. Next time I get that feeling about don't go there, I'm going to listen to it. I'm just going to close my lips and not say anything and think about it for a while and see what happens. And then that'll be a step and that'll be a process and that'll be a technique of yours. And then you'll expand on that. You see, it just goes on and on. And you may mess up 20 or 30 times before you start seeing the difference that you're starting to get it. It's a slow process that's growing up. And uh, so that's how you deal with it. You realize this is a lesson for me. I just hurt somebody's feelings. I didn't mean to. I didn't want to. There's nothing gained by it. It made things worse rather than better. How do I avoid it? Well, put some thought into that. Don't just say, oh, shucks, shouldn't have done that. Forget about it and go on. You see, because then you're just going to do it again and again and again. You haven't dealt with the problem. Or if you just stop talking to people or whenever the whenever these subjects come up that create contention, you stop talking. Now you are fixing symptoms. You're not fixing problems. The problem is the cause, the fear, you see. So don't overlook the problem and go fix the symptom. Well, when I get with these people, I just won't say anything, you know, or I'll only talk about the weather and, you know, something else. I won't get into the things that always produce contention and I hurt people's feelings. That's a symptom reliever, not a problem solver. Find the fear, get rid of it, keep working on it. Months, six months, a year, keep working on it. Eventually you'll beat it and it'll, it'll drop away. You'll feel better. Now you'll be like you said about the little old lady, you know, it's not like you don't hurt them because you know that wouldn't be a good thing to do. And so you don't do it. You don't hurt them because that's not your reaction anymore. You don't boil up. You don't get upset. You've changed. So that's what we're after here. The next part, Tom, is uh, how do I forgive myself? Well, that's the easiest part. You forgive yourself because you never blame yourself in the first place. You accept it, that that's just the way you are. All right, I'm a flawed human being. I'm not perfect love yet. That's not a big surprise to most people. And you can accept that that's the way it is. The next thing then is, what am I going to do about it? Well, we just talked about that. You're going to find the fear. You're going to put effort in it. You're not going to let it ride. You're not going to just forget about it and go on. Guilt is useless, except that you are that way. You did do that thing. There is a reason for it. That reason isn't just bad behavior or because you didn't get enough sleep that night or because that person was particularly uh, pushy. Don't blame it on something else. You, you did that is because whatever happened reached in and grabbed hold of your fear and shook it. And that's how you reacted to it. So deal with the fear. Don't make excuses for it. Don't feel guilty. Uh, just feel like you need to fix it and be serious about fixing it. Um, and is that fair to the other person? Not about fair. Actually, there's no such thing really as fair. Fair is in the eye of the beholder. Fair is mostly a creation of our ego. We use the word fair to justify what we're doing. If we do something that's unpleasant to somebody else, well, it's only fair. They did this or they did that. You know, fair is, a, is basically a concept that uh, is, a, is a tool of our ego to make us either feel good or feel, you know, not so good about something that happened. We can complain, oh, that wasn't fair, you know, to me or to them or somebody else. But, um, you know, fair is not really a, an important concept in that sense. So is it fair to the other person? It's not about fairness. It's about who you are. You being not a, a, a being of love, and that's not fair to other people because you're not a being of love. See, that doesn't make any sense. You are who you are, whatever that is. You may be a monster, but if you are, you're a monster. You may be really annoying to other people. You may be you know, very arrogant, 
If you are, accept it. That's the way you are. Now, fix it. <laughs> Try to be some other way. So it's not about being fair to someone or not being fair to someone or whether you apologize directly or get down on your knees and apologize or whatever. That's not the point. That's all basically trading ego. And uh, fairness basically fits into that. Accept who you are. Minimize whatever damage is done in whatever way you can do that. Maybe an apology would work. Maybe just shutting up and going away would work. Uh, maybe uh, smiling and changing the subject would work. But don't let the opportunity pass to accept it and fix it. And what about setting the intent of not hurting anyone like that anymore again? What about doing that so that you don't come back to the yeah. same point well, over and over again? Yeah. That's part of the process of fixing it. If yeah. you don't have that, then you'll never fix it. That's step one in fixing it. If you don't say, wow, I really don't want to do that, and what am I going to do about it? And you don't hold that intent so that you actually do do something about it, then you know nothing will ever happen. You'll say, oh, gee, that wasn't nice of me, and then you'll go on, and you'll continue to do that same stuff because it's not coming out of your intellect. It's coming out of your being level. That's where that arrogance is coming from, and you need to change at the being level. So just realizing it at the intellectual level and trying to act better makes you more civilized, but it doesn't make you a better person and it doesn't grow you up any. So the point is, yes, you have to keep that intent, not just for five minutes after the incident, but for the next five years after the incident, you have to keep that intent of always wanting to outgrow your fear and work on it all the time. It's just something you do. That's your job here. Anything else you do is extra. That's your main job here. So focus on that first. Uh, thanks, Tom. I think we, we got that one covered in, in, in all its stages. Um, I'm going to move on. We've got a lot of questions, and time, as always, is flying by. So uh, the next one is from Chad. Chad writes, uh, in philosophy, there is a debate that has raged since the time of Socrates and Plato, and that is the debate over whether there exists basic absolute truths truths that are without reference to anything else or whether everything is relative and then truths are only true in relation to something else so i wonder how mbt approaches this question often philosophers are pointed to experience itself as an example of an undoubtable invariable absolute truth Rene descartes i think therefore i am certainly points to this so could it be then that the void exists is an absolute truth or perhaps information exists is an absolute truth or is the philosopher's conclusion that experience exists a good example of an absolute truth? Perhaps this is better termed awareness or consciousness. Or would MBT suggest that indeed there are no absolutes, everything is relative, and we must get comfortable with our old friend uncertainty? Well, there's a, several things being confused there, and no, MBT is not going to uh, come down on that uh, on that side of things. There are some absolute truths, not very many. We can boil them up in just a couple of, of simple words. But first of all, there was some confusion in there between facts and truth. Okay, Now, a fact is just a statement of what is. So when we, when we say things like the void exists or consciousness exists or I exist, like Descartes said, then that's a fact. I don't know that we'd want to call that a truth. When people talk about truth, they're usually talking about moral choice. You know, is it, uh, you know, they're talking about um, ethics. They're talking about those kinds of decisions. They're talking about the, the why of doing things and whether it's right or whether it's wrong. That's the that's the choice that I think mostly comes up to, you know, well, what's true? It's not so much what's true. If, if we think a true is a fact, then it's easy to see what's a fact and what's an opinion. You know, when you when you uh, learn something about critical thinking, you know, you'll spend the whole week on separating opinions from facts. Not always easy to do, but uh, generally can be done with a little with a little effort. So I don't, I don't want to just call um, facts the truth. 
and uh, things that aren't facts, not the truth, because now we have a different sets of facts. We have the material facts or objective facts, and then we have um, subjective facts, how you feel. That's a subjective fact, you see, not an objective fact. Well, if I say I feel angry, is that the truth? It's a subjective fact, not an objective fact. So now we have subjective and objective facts, but sub only objective facts can be verified by somebody else. And we get into all of that, and that's not really where we want to go with this. We're talking mostly about moral choice. Are there things that are right and wrong? I think I'd put it that way rather than true or not true. I think it's more profitable to see it in a right and wrong. And yes, there are ways to determine what's right and wrong. Now, relativists with right and wrong would tell you that, well, you know, uh, belching after a good meal in certain cultures is right. That's a good thing to do. And it shows appreciation for the food and the cook. And if you don't do that, you're rude. And other cultures say, well, just belching after a meal would be really crude. You need to not do that. It's kind of piggy behavior. And uh, we don't like that, you see. So these are two different cultures. It's the same act. And those acts are sometimes good and sometimes bad. Therefore, it's really good and bad's all relative. Well, that's because they're talking about actions, doing. You see, morality doesn't attach to the doing. Morality and ethics attach to the intent behind the undoing. In the one, the intent behind the belching at, at, the, at the dinner in the uh, culture where that's a good thing, the intent was to compliment, you know, the chef and uh, say thank you to the host. In the other culture, the not belching was the same thing, <laughs> was to, you know, not annoy the host and the other people there. So both were good intents. So both were the right thing to do in that situation. Right and wrong can be uh, looked at in the terms of doing, but when you do, you always come up with conflicts like this. You can't tell what's right and what's wrong, and everything seems to be relative. But I'll give you a, 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 an ethical or a moral choice that is always right or always wrong, and it doesn't matter what the doing is. And that's probably the only absolute that I know of that uh, I think is really what you're talking about. And that is that if what you do, if whatever your act is that you do, because now we're in this world of, of, of doing, and your in, intent behind your act, you have an, an act and you have an intent behind the act, something is a good thing to do. I'm, I'm still, I'm focusing on the doing because that's the way we in the material world look at things. Otherwise, it's all subjective in your head, and people say, well, that's not moral or immoral. It's just in your head. It's not really an act until you get it out there, and then it's either right or wrong. So that's not true either, but all right. Anything you do that ends up in the long-term lowering entropy of the whole of the system, then that was a good thing to do. Anything in the long term that ends up increasing the entropy of the system, then that's a bad thing to do. So now we have good and bad defined in terms of entropy, in terms of whether the, the net entropy in the system increases or decreases. See? All right, now that's one way of, and that's an absolute. It, the entropy either increases, decreases, or stays the same. There's, there's no other choice there. If it stays the same, then it's neither good or bad. If it decreases, it's good. If it increases, it's bad. Very simple, but very hard to calculate. We don't have entropy calculators that if you stand up and yell fire in a theater, you know, what's the, how much entropy does that cause? And is that more or less entropy than stealing, uh, you know, the person's popcorn next to you? We have all these other moral questions come up. Well, we can't calculate it, but we can get a pretty good sense of it. And sometimes we don't know about the long term. Sometimes we just want to make this thing better, and there's unintended consequences, and it makes a whole lot of other things worse, and we just weren't aware of that. Well, our intent was good, but our action 
was not good. Our action was bad. So a good intent can sometimes lead to a bad action. A bad intent could even possibly, not often, but could possibly lead to a good action. You might actually think you're getting somebody and do something to actually help somebody out. You know, it it depends. That's possible too. But the moral value goes with the intent. Why are you doing it? Your immediate moral value, your the moral value of your choice, let's put it that way, not of your action, but of your choice. Why am I making this choice? Is it because of love? Is it out of caring? Or is it because of fear? Let's say out of anger. You see, well, the choice out of love lowers entropy. The choice out of fear, out of anger, raises entropy. When you raise entropy, you just make a situation worse. You don't fix it. When you lower entropy, you make a situation better. So now we have a a um, absolute way of deciding whether our choices are good or bad choices, moral and immoral choices. See, it's depending on what they do to the net entropy of the system. And it's the net entropy of the system because sometimes a choice will help some and hurt others. Sometimes it's a zero-sum game. And if you're going to help this one, that comes at the expense of somebody else getting a little less. You see, it's often like that. Not always, but sometimes it's like that. And when it is, then you have to look at the net effect of the long-term entropy. If it lowers entropy more than it raises it, then it was overall a good thing to do. So things get complicated sometimes. And if we're not sure whether we're going to raise the entropy or lower entropy by a a certain act, you can see that it might go either way. Then you take caution. You tread carefully. Don't make any brash choices. Tread carefully until you see which way that entropy meter is pointing. Is it pointing positive or negative? Are you lowering or raising it? So so you, you tread carefully when you don't know. You have no beliefs. You're open. Well, this might be a good thing to do. I think it's a good thing to do. My intent is good that it's gonna that it will be a good thing to do at a lower entropy. But uh, I, I don't know for sure. So instead of just barging in, I'm gonna move slowly and see if I can't see what the how the chips fall. See, so. That's the way you approach that problem. So that's the only absolute I know of is the entropy measure of whether your choice is a good one or a bad one. And uh, there's a difference between a a good or bad choice and a good and bad, a good and bad, you know, a doing, a thing to do, a good and bad action and a good and bad intention. Sometimes, like I said, the the good or the bad intentions may lead to a good or bad, you know, result based on how, much information we have, how intelligent we are processing how we affect other people. Often we have no idea how we affect other people. So we do the best we can. And I guess that's the last thing to say about about your moral choice is that you can't not make choices because you don't know how the entropy count's going to work out over the next year. You see, you can't do that. There's uncertainty. You never know. So how do you live your life? You don't live it in fear of making mistakes, fear of doing something wrong. You realize that making mistakes is how you learn. You try to think about it. You try to be careful. You try to do what you think is the best choice. You do it, and then you pay attention to the results. If those results go negative on you, Well, you've got an opportunity to learn something. Next time, you'll be smarter about that. If they go positive on you, you can pat yourself on the back and say, okay, that was a good choice. That was a good intent, and it turned out also to be a good choice. They were both good. And now that will reinforce that kind of behavior, that kind of action in a similar situation. You see, so you learn, you grow, and you change. So you don't not make choices or hedge your choices or, you know, what do they call people who are uh, afraid of making decisions? 
You know, they, they just can't bring themselves to make a decision because they don't know that the answer they give will be right or wrong for sure. Therefore, being wrong is just too horrible, so they can't make a decision. A lot of people live like that, and they don't grow up very fast because they don't make any but the most trivial choices. You figure it out, do your best, think about it, bring to bear all your experience, do it, learn from it, grow up from the results. You'll get feedback. Look for that feedback. Be aware of that feedback. Don't just do it and forget about it. Do it and look for the feedback. That's how you, you know, that's part of the process of, of growing up. So there are some absolutes and there are some things in the world of actions that are relative. But in the world of intents, you either have a good intent or a bad intent. See, that's not mixed. Your intention is an intention to express your ego and your fear and your belief, or it's an ego to express your caring and your love and your consideration for others. It's hard to get those mixed up. It's uh, generally it's one way or the other. And if it lies in the middle, then there's no call. You know, it's a, it's a wash. Thanks, Tom. Chad, I hope that answers your question satisfactorily. I imagine it does. Uh, next, Fabio. Um, Tom, you have said that our PMR VR, unlike, say, The Sims or World of Warcraft, was not programmed by the larger consciousness system, but rather just evolved in billions of years from its initial conditions and rule set, the big digital bang. Maybe with the exception of some minor or sporadic nudging and adjustments from both the LCS and its agents, or some NPMR anti-rats. Okay, anti-rats. But what about all the other virtual reality frames, the dream reality frame, for instance, or the transition reality frame? Are they also evolved from initial conditions plus a rule set? A looser rule set, I would guess, but a rule set just the same. So are they still evolving? Our Sorry, are our dreams and transitions significantly different from those of our ancestors? Uh, yes, they are um, evolving systems. All of these virtual realities tend to be live systems. And that's because live systems change as the need changes. That's what evolution does, right? As, as the need and events and the environments change, they change to meet it. Program system is just what you program. It's always there. Uh, the only way you change it is to go in and, re, you know, erase this code and replace it with some other kind of code. You can upgrade it, but that means in order to upgrade it, you have to be very, very knowledgeable of all the effects and interactions and, and uh, chains of interaction that go on because of the changes you make. Nobody is that aware of that in a very large, complex, interactive system. Best to let it just evolve, and that way it always reflects the beings that are using it. So it it evolves as they evolve. You know, it's it's just an evolving part of the conscious system. So yes, your dream reality is a reality that has similar function in that it is there to help you grow up, give you experience of choices that help you grow up. And it gives you a completely different set of choices than the choices you have here, which makes it very valuable. Um, but it's, it's a similar reality with a much, much looser rule set. And it didn't, need a, it didn't really need a big bang. It just needed a rule set. And people could go, in, go there and interact within that rule set however they wanted to. So it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't have a tight rule set. It's what I call a very loose rule set with just some rules, but not many. So I don't know if that does this whole question or not, but um, what do you think, Keith? Is there more to it than that? Did I get it all? I think I think you did, Tom. Um, I'm looking through the question as you're, you're, you're answering it, and uh, yeah, I think you got it. I'm sure I'm sure Fabio will let us know if he di if if we if we didn't if you didn't. So, um, but I think so. I do. Um, the next one, Event Horizon, has been playing around with lucid dream experiments, and uh, he had a question about that. So, 
He took a random card and put it face down without himself or anyone looking at it. Later, while in a lucid dream, he pulls the card out of a special card-making pants pocket with the intent to see what that random card that he put face down was. He looked at the card, and it was the Ten of Diamonds. After waking up, he confirmed that it was the Ten of Diamonds. So the question is, did he access the data as to what that card was, or did he alter the future probability of what the card would be rendered, what card would be rendered, sorry, upon looking at it? Okay, that's an interesting question. Um, the answer would be whichever one of those was stronger, he was stronger in his ability to do. Some people have a lot of trouble getting data accurately out of a database because they have a hard time just letting go and accepting what they get. They tend to judge the data and then they tend to, you know, to double check it and triple check it. And pretty soon they're so wadded up over their multiple attempts and multiple answers that they don't know which ends up and they just not very good at getting data. Um, other people are much better at just using their intent to focus on an outcome, which is changing the probability. What he was doing, of course, of using his special uh, card, card producing pants pocket in his dream, that's a tool. That's a tool he created to use in order to determine what the um, card was. And that's an interesting uh, tool. You just reach in your pants pocket and there's a card, you pull it out and look at it. Okay. That's a way of him seeing the card without running afoul of all the ego problems of of, uh, you know, did I get that data right? Am I interpreting that right? Am I making that up? You know, because it all happens really fast. It's just, blam, there's the card. You pull it out and you look at it. You got an instant. In that tenth of a second, you either see what it is or you don't see anything at all, you see. So that is a tool that shuts a lot of this troublesome um, processing that we do and judging and intellectualizing out. That's why that's a real nifty tool. Pull it out of your pants pocket and look at it. Some people have it flash on a screen, but I like the pulling it out of the pants pocket. That's pretty clever. Anyhow, that tool basically focuses his intent on what is that card. That's what his intent is. What is that card? What will I, you know, that's one, one way of looking at it. What is that card? If he looks at it that way, then he'll probably be getting the data out of the database. If, when he pulls it out of his pocket and looks at it, his mind is saying, well, I took that card, and, you know, particularly if he takes the card, you know, this is now while he's not in a lucid dream, when he's in his physical avatar, he takes the card out of the deck, shuffles the deck, doesn't look at it, and takes the card and puts it in his pants pocket. That's where he keeps that card, perhaps. You see, it's in his pants pocket. Now he's going to reach in his, his uh, metaphor, metaphorical pants pocket in a lucid dream and pull out the card and look at it. You see, now he's more looking at you know, the result, the end result. And when you look at the end result, you're also putting energy into the, the probability of making that be the result that comes true. So you're really doing both of those things. Well, sometimes one more than the other based on how you think of, you know, how you're using the tool, how you think about the tool and how you're actually using the tool. What's in your mind? What's your intent at that point that you're seeing the result. That's more of a changing the probability or that you're reading the data, getting the information. So that would bias some of which way it works. But you find after a while that certain ways work for you and other ways don't. And that's the ways that you personally are more successful at doing. So that's why you make up your own tools, because your own tools work better for you than anybody else. So it could be both of those working. One of them is likely to be more powerful than the other. And in that case, that would be the process that would dominate. It could be either way. See, there's uncertainty of what that card is. Therefore, the probability that it's anything could change. So you can make that probability whatever it is you see, and then that's the card that's 
in your pocket or face down, you know, in the cupboard or wherever you put the card. So it could work either way. Depends on your mind and depends on how you use your tool. What's your intent in a moment of pulling the card out of your pocket? What do you think you're doing? Do you think you're looking at the result or do you think you're getting information? Or both. That, that makes uh, that makes perfectly good sense. Probably both. Um, I know yeah. Donna and I do the do do the, the those those tests, and uh, we've often wondered which one of those two it was. And interesting. Well, you know the system. The way the system works is that okay. He's done this, and he's he's pulled out his metaphorical pocket, a card out of it, and he's seen it, and it was. I don't remember what he said, but let's say it's the Ace of Spades. So he sees that. Now, he's going to get out of his, his uh, uh, altered state. He's going to come back to the physical world. His avatar is going to go over and look at that card to see what it is, right? Now, when he turns that card over, that is a measurement. The way the system does measurements is that it says, okay, what are the, what are the possibilities here? Well, there's a one, one in 52 possibilities that that card is going to be the Ace of Spades. Okay, so if that's all there were to it, then he'd have a one in 52 probability. But that's not all there is to it. He's used this tool of his to focus his intent on a particular outcome. He also is perhaps at the same time wanting to access the information of what card that is. So you see, they're actually both kind of two different ways of looking at the exact same thing. It's not like there's this process and that process and only one of them can work because they're two different mutually exclusive processes. They're not in the, in the realm of probability. What's the probability that he's going to pull out a ace of spades? Well, we'll look at that probability function and because of him putting effort in reading it, probability will go up a little. Because of him putting effort in modifying future probability, the probability will go up a little, you see. Because he's using a tool that makes him look at it instantly and doesn't give him time to make judgments, ah, that'll run it up a little bit. So when you get the whole thing done, the system goes in, takes a, takes a random draw from the, the uh, this probability distribution of all the possibilities and the, and the uh, probability of each possibility. And when it does that, it's going to get the thing that's most likely to happen. And if he's good at what he's doing and his tool's good, he'll get the ace of spades because he'll bias it. And how much did he bias it? Did he bias it 100%? That means he always gets the card. He can do this 100 times, and every time he gets the card. Well, now he's got it down to you know, probability of one that he gets it right and zero that he gets it wrong. But if it only works seven times out of ten, then he is shifting the probability, but he doesn't always shift it enough because you do get a random draw out of that probability distribution. That's why sometimes you're going to get it wrong, even if you're very good at this game, because sometimes that random draw will just pull something out that's not very likely, you see. So unless you can make your probability distribution just a real big probability spike right on top of that card, so it's the only thing that's got a prob- it's got a probably a one, everything else zero, then there's some probability you're going to be wrong. So most people who do these things are wrong some of the time because that random draw will just get them. Even if their probability of being right is a 90% and the probability wrong is a 10%, sometimes they'll grab that 10%. That's why it's like that. Very seldom is anybody 100% because of the probabilistic nature of the way our reality works. So both of those paths, if you will, for getting the right answer contribute to the probability of getting the right answer. And that's what the final result is, is a draw out of that probability distribution. So no one, it's, we say it's that bell curve again, isn't it? We've always talked about the odd ones that fall out either side of the bell curve the, in the random draw. Yeah, you always, you can, you know, that's what keeps things stirred up here, right? You never, uh, you know, everything doesn't always happen the way it's most likely to happen. You can get something that's 
out on the tail of the curve. Well, not that often. You know, if it's only one in a thousand, then you only get it one in a thousand times. That's what the probability of one in a thousand means. But, you know, when you do something billions of times, well, that one in a thousand pops up more than you'd think. So stuff happens. That's, but that is why people who are very good at their psychic skills sometimes don't get it right. That's why you have to always be skeptical of what you get. If you get something and you say, well, most of the time when I get this feeling, it means this. And I've got this feeling now. Well, don't bet the farm on it. You know, don't, uh, you know, stake your life on it. It may not come out that way this time, even though it almost always does. It may not this time. Be skeptical. But you should also have some encouragement that it mostly works out this way. So it probably will this time too. But you always have to stay skeptical, no matter what it is. Because this is a probabilistic simulation, and you can get some weird things fall out of out of the you know the the ends of a tail of a distribution that you never expected that that's what would happen, and you, then you feel like oh I failed I must have lost it I'm losing my gift you know well then you start to have fear and the fear starts to degrade what you're doing and that is a problem, but if you just know that you're not going to be right all the time. When you do these sorts of things, you're going to make, you're going to have things where it just doesn't work. And see the people who the the people who are the scoffers say, "Ah, oh, well, if you could really do this, you could do it all the time." You're not really doing this because otherwise, you know, you just do it. You either can do it or you can't. If you can do it, you'll do it, and if you can't, you can't. Don't tell me you can do it sometimes and can't do it other times, and you have no idea, you know, when those times are. That's all nonsense. Well, they just don't understand the nature of reality and how it works, and that is probabilistic, you see. So they fault psychics because they're wrong, and if they're ever wrong, then they could be wrong any time, and therefore there's no point in listening to them, you see. But that's not the right way. The non-physical world is not just a duplicate of the physical world. It doesn't work the same way, and uh, we have you know, different... different uh, constraints on our ability to get information you know you know using psi and there is usually a lot of uncertainty and where there's a lot of uncertainty it's hard to always get the right answer it's impossible to always get the right answer sometimes that random draw will pull it out from under the tail doesn't mean you're not good at what you do it just means that's life expect it well, well, Tom, it would be kind of boring if everything was that predictable, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, but, it, it would be. So that does draw a question. Um, with your experiments, is there a chance that uh, the unpredictability or the un the, the, the psi uncertainty principle could mean that sometimes the experiments don't work? But if they collect enough data on the experiments, then it's an overwhelming positive? Yeah, yeah I think that's something we uh, talked about earlier. With the rule set, there's not so much uncertainty. It's a smaller amount of uncertainty. There are other factors that are probably more important for a rule set thing. If you're talking about uh, things like drawing cards out of a deck, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, what's going to come out of there. So with a lot of uncertainty, it's easier to modify probabilities to change them around so that things are in your favor and not in your favor. Uh, if you have a rock, you know, here's a little physics. I put my hand where you can see. If you have a rock and you let it go, the probability it's going to fall up is really, really low because that's not the way the rule set works. See, now you're talking with basic rule set stuff, and you can drop a rock a million times and or even a billion times, and you'll probably never get even one of them where it goes up because the probability of going up is probably zero. So it just won't happen. So the rule, the rule set things tend to be less uncertainty about them. Now, there's some uncertainty there. You know, if you measure a board and it's one foot long, well, what's the probability if somebody else measures it, they'll get exactly one foot? Eh, probably not that good. They'll get 1.002 feet. It won't be exactly the same, you see. So there's some uncertainty in there, some uncertainty where how long that board is. You know, how do you measure it? The board isn't smooth. It's got a little bumps. You get down to the molecular level and the molecules are all jumping around. You know, what really defines the length? 
there's uncertainty there, but it's small. It's real teeny in the, you know, in the third decimal place. So that's the way it is in the objective physical, you know, science world is they only deal with things that have small uncertainty. If it has large uncertainty, they don't call it science. They call it soft science. Like if it's sociology or they call it pseudoscience, if it's, you know, something else. They only deal with things with small uncertainty. So I don't think that's going to be a big problem. But there are things in my experiments that could get in the way. I'm using uh, the criteria that the, the larger consciousness system is going to pick a process that's efficient. And that if it has a choice between doing something really efficient or doing something that shows us that it's a virtual reality, it'll probably do something that's efficient. But if it decides it really doesn't want us to see that this is a virtual reality, it can do something on purpose that's very inefficient just because it thinks that other choice, keeping that secret from us, is more important. Now, that's a call a larger kind of system can make, and I don't know how it might make those calls, you see. Uh, I don't know that, that my assessment of what's most efficient is really what's most efficient. I could be wrong in that. There may be some other way that's even more efficient that I didn't think of. And it's not going to do it the way I think it's going to do it because it's got some more efficient way to do it that I didn't get. So there's lots of little things that could go wrong. So that's the nifty thing about experiments. You do them and you see what happens. You know, you wait for the results and you're not, uh, you know, you're skeptical. Those results could surprise you. And I could be surprised by these. I think they'll probably work out the way I like, but you never know for sure. There's always some skepticism and uncertainty. Well, only time is going to tell, Tom, and um, yep. it's looking like some really interesting people are going to pick up on these experiments. So it's um, it's exciting. Um, running short of time, we did hear from Taron P, uh, MBT forum user. First of all, he wanted to say thank you, Tom, for replying, as you always do, in such depth to his last question, which was on the predictions of MBT. Um, he has two questions today. The first one is, what could be the MBT explanation of working of the impossible EM drive? In other words, how does the simulation theory explain it better? Well, I don't really know the technology of an EM drive. I've got some vague idea from things I've read and heard that, you know, this is uh, some sort of new propulsion system that will hopefully move things out in outer space. And uh, there are lots of propulsion systems that get uh, that come and go. And most of them do work like you can uh, you know, put up a big sail, right? If you're out in outer space. You can put up a big sail and the photons from the sun will hit your sail and give you a little bit of momentum. Each photon, remember, is a, carries a little bit of momentum. So when it gets absorbed in your sail, then you just get it's like being hit by a, with a rock. You know, you just move a little further. Well, if you get a big sail, you can collect all these photons and it will push you. That's what they call the solar wind. It's just uh, being pushed by the, by the uh, momentum of the photons. So you can get a sailboat out in outer space, and that works. That works too. Uh, so there's lots of ideas. It's just most of them aren't really that efficient to the point that they say, "Oh yeah, this is going to really make a difference. This is the propulsion that's going to make us go, you know, really high speeds and be very uh, variable and under our control and all the rest of it." So I don't know what the technology of the EM drive it is, but if because it's EM, that usually in physics is electromagnetism, electromagnetics. That's what ENM stands for in science for the most part. So an ENM drive sounds like a, an electromagnetic drive, in which case it's probably something like that. Uh, you know, the photons with their uh, with their momenta. It could be, you know, with a rocket. The way a rocket works is you throw enough particles out the back nozzle of a rocket, the rocket moves forward because there's conservation of momentum. Every time you throw something this way, something else gets a little force or a nudge to go in the opposite way. It's called conservation of, of momentum. Okay, in this case, it's linear momentum, not angular momentum, but it's conservation of momentum. So that's how a rocket works. They burn fuels so that they heave you know, tons of particles out the nozzle at a very high speed 
which means that's a lot of momentum going that way and the rocket moves in the opposite direction. Well, if you throw photons, not little pieces of fuel, molecules of burnt fuel or whatever, but if you, if uh, instead of hydrogen atoms, if you throw uh, photons backwards, now it's E and M, electromagnetism, that's usually about fields and photons. If you do that, then it's gonna affect, work the same way as a rocket. If you heave photons in, you know, the minus X direction, then you'll get a little force pushing you in the X direction, the opposite direction. So I don't know whether that's it or not, whether I've just jumped to that conclusion uh, out of ignorance, could be. I don't know enough about that technology to really say anything about it. But if that's the case, yes, of course that'll work, just like the sail will work. The question is, will it work efficiently and effectively enough to do what it is we need it to do you know, to make space travel uh, uh, something that's that's functional. Thing is about space travel is all those things out there are so far away. They are really, really long distances. Even uh, photons have uh, have to wait a long time before they before they get to where they're going. It's uh, at the speed of light. It still takes you know thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years. You know, for light to go from point A to point B. And that's a very fast, that's the fastest thing that we can do here. So even at the fastest speed we can arrange, it takes billions of years to go from point A to point B, you know, on opposite sides of the universe. Uh, that's a problem. So you need something that with the propulsion that can really get you up to high speeds. And that takes a lot of energy. And obviously, plinking out photons one at a time isn't going to get you there. Blinking them out at uh, trillions, you know, at a microsecond, eh, it might do some good, particularly if you can do it over a long time. So don't know how they do it. And MBT doesn't really have much to say about that because it's just rule set stuff. Just rule set stuff. If the rule set supports it, then it can be done uh, real well. If the rule set doesn't, then all the hopes in the world aren't going to make it work. So it's not so much you know, MB. There's not really a position for MBT there very much, unless it's some other kind of technology that I don't know anything about. Then maybe MBT would have a position on it, but don't know. Well, maybe one day we will find out. Um, yeah. Tam and P's second question, Tom, is on something that I know that we have talked about before. Um, it's this, this one that I've gone backwards and forwards with, with Lewis, and this is qualia. Uh, how are qualia explained by MBT? Obviously, qualia are the irreducible subjective experiences that we all have, such as an experience of the color red or the smell of coffee. These have no physical counterparts, but do have neural correlates. So we don't have an object color or an object smell but we do surely perceive them so the question is if the physical environment is a simulation virtual just numbers then how does that simulation produce these private and entirely subjective experiences what is the mechanism here as per mbt so to be specific how do the computations lead to a subjective experience of say the color red okay well the way this works is that the com that the uh Virtual reality rendering engine does not compute those experiences. Consciousness has those experiences. Okay, they're not computed. It's not there for us to, to. Um, you know, it's not like it computes it and it's a little experience ball and then we swallow it and we get that experience. It isn't like that. Let's take the color red, since that was the example. Okay, the color red is a is a very uh, well-defined frequency range for light or wavelength range, if you'd like to look at it in the other way. So any any uh, light, any photon that has a wavelength from you know this much to that much is in the red area, and it might be you know kind of a blue red up in a higher frequency and maybe uh more like a, a yellow or orange red in the in the lower frequencies but and they're all different shades of red and the true red if there's such a thing is is the one in the middle but all of that's red so what the larger consciousness system does with our virtual reality rendering engine is that it applies the rule set the rule set is the physics, if you will, 
So the rule set says, and is computed, this, this avatar will have a frequency of such and such impinging on his eyeball. All right. Now it can compute that because somebody turned a light on, a red light on someplace. So it then computes that there's going to be an interaction with this avatar. It's all part of the rule set and the biology and how that works. Well, it's the consciousness that takes that information and turns it into red light. It's the consciousness that when it was first born, looked at the Christmas tree and went, nah, what's that? And somebody said, that's a red light. And the consciousness remembered that. So now whatever that stimulation was, that's what that entity calls red. Now, if the entity that pointed it out and said that it was a red light, that's what they had defined previously as red because somebody told them what red was. So every entity may get a different stimulation, if you will, a different interpretation of what that data means. The data that the rendering engine computes is such and such a frequency is impinging on you know, the eyeball focused on the retina and that signal sent. I mean, that's what happens, but that's data now. That's the analog here in, the, in this virtual reality. The data for the computer sends the consciousness is data that that consciousness has to interpret. Okay, That consciousness gets the data and learns to call that data red. And it learns that as, a, as an infant, whatever that data is. Now, that may, you know, that could be, one person's red is not necessarily another person's red. How I see red is probably minutely different than how you see red. But we all have it probably close enough that if I point at something and say red, you'll nod your head and say, yeah, that's, that's red. But we may disagree on shades or we may disagree even some places whether you call that red or would you call that mauve, you know, or would you call that something else? Because we see things, everyone's unique. Everyone's physiology is unique. Everyone's interpretation is unique because their experience is unique. So nobody knows what the other person actually sees when they say red, but we've all learned that we say a word red for a certain set of stimulations. So the, the quality comes from the learning of the consciousness. It doesn't come from a computation. The computation tells you the frequency, the frequency of the sound wave, the amount of pressure on the you know, on the hand, you know, all the senses, the molecules that give you a sense of smell, you know, all of that is, is rule set stuff. The taste buds that give you certain things for taste, all of that is compu com computed and computable. Well, that's not a word, but computable. All of that's computable. All of that you can put down into numbers and frequencies and intensities and locations and all the data that you might need to, to specify that, then data gets sent to the consciousness. The consciousness has the experience, interprets the data, and names things the way he learns how to name from birth. He learns what to call what what. And since most of us have similar physiology, though not identical, that's why we all agree basically on what the colors are, even though we're not seeing really the same thing. We've just learned that that's what you call, you know, that's the name you call that experience. So it's the consciousness that creates the qualia. It's the consciousness's interpretation creates the sensation of the qualia, and then that interpretation is given a name from the culture, from the language. So that's how that works. So the computer doesn't... Com Compute red. It doesn't compute the smell of violets. It computes the chemicals that interact with the um, uh, what is it? Uh, interacts with the uh, with the nose. This consciousness interprets that as a sensation, and then learns the name violet to associate with that association. So that's how the that's how that works. No, you can't compute qualia. You don't need to compute qualia. Consciousness experiences qualia and gives it a name. 
and their experience is based on their you know their their consciousness their you know how they interpret the data it's not fixed good answer um all wonderful answers as, as always tom um you know i just i don't understand where the last uh, three hours have just disappeared to as always you're ready to keep going and um it, it's gone it's, it's done again so apologies to those of you that um we didn't get to ask your questions we will get there next time tj's back in the room just in time to say goodbye um Tickets are now on sale for Tom's visit to the Pacific Northwest this coming summer. We'll be at Portland State University, Portland, Oregon, Saturday, the 5th of August, 2017. And the following week, we'll be at uh, bringing Tom to the Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. That'll be Saturday, the 12th of August, 2017. Again, full info can be count, sorry, found on the future events page at mbtevents.com. Uh, I know a bunch of people have emailed about us about this one. We uh, we hope you enjoyed that little teaser trailer that we put out over the holidays. Uh, by now, full details about the MBT immersive experience with Tom that we are going to be premiering in 2018 should be available by the time you're watching this. So, uh, yes, busy times indeed. Uh, Tom, as always, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Justin. Uh, thank you, Mike, who had to dash off to work. TJ Sveda for your questions. And thank you at home for joining us. We look forward to meeting many of you on the road. So we'll see you real soon.